You're listening to audio from the West End Community Church in McGregor, Manitoba. There was a man that every morning he would walk uh, on the beach, and uh, it was just after a storm that he was walking along the beach in the morning. And as he was walking along the sand and just watching the waves come in, and he was noticing that um, this violent storm that uh, that had taken place the night before had swept in all sorts of uh, sea life, and specifically uh, a whole bunch of starfish. Uh, and they were just kind of lying on the beach, and and they were just kind of sitting there. And he was walking along, and he was just noticing that, you know, they're just hundreds, just so many of these starfish that it just kind of swept ashore and that's kind of where they were and they were going to bake in the sun. And and so he just kept walking along and, you know, thinking his own thoughts and he noticed off in the distance as he walked along the shore, there was this little boy, uh, a young man, and he was doing something. He couldn't quite make it out. But he was walking along. And as he got closer and closer to this boy, he could see that he was stooping down. Um, and it looked like he was just picking up rocks and, and throwing them into the sea. And he got closer and closer and closer. Finally, he caught up to the boy. And uh, he, noticed that the, he noticed that he was actually picking up the starfish. And he was throwing them back into the ocean. And the man was curious. And he said, why are you doing that, son? And, uh, and the little boy said, well, you know, all these starfish are here on the beach. And they're just going to bake in the sun. They're going to die unless they get returned to, uh, into the ocean, into their home. And... Uh, the man was just kind of perplexed or whatever. He, he said, well, that's a, a really good notion. He said, but look at how many starfish are on the beach. There's thousands. Like, you just, do you really think you're making a difference? And the little boy, wisdom beyond his years, he, he bent down and he picked up a starfish and he chucked it into the ocean. And then he turned and he said, Mr., do you think I made a difference to that starfish? We live in a world of over 7 billion people. And when you think of numbers on that scale, it's easy for us to underestimate the significance of just, just one person. Isn't it? Sure it is. I mean, sometimes I think, I think it's, it's easy for every one of us, it doesn't matter who we are, it's easy for us to feel or struggle with the idea of being insignificant. Or, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we, we are just one person. We are just uh, that one person. If there are so many people doing so many things that are so important, and those people that are doing those important things are so gifted, who needs me? I think we all struggle with those kinds of things sometimes. What can I 
as a single individual, contribute to a great and a vast, overwhelming need that the world has. And this world that we live in does have needs. And so what can I, just one person, I'm just a drop in the bucket, right? However, I would argue that that should not dissuade us from actually doing our part. Because if everybody had that mentality, (laughs) nothing would get done, right? Edward Everett Hale, uh, he put it this way. He said, I am only one, but still I am one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. That, I think, is a good statement, or a, good, a great statement in a world like ours. There is, only, there is only one of you. There is only one of you. There's only one of me. Only one person with your exact heritage. There is only one person with your precise series of events and sufferings that life has brought you to this moment right here, right now, today. There is only one of you. There is only one of you with your personal convictions. There is only one of you with your makeup and your skills or lack thereof. There is only one person with your appearance, your touch, your voice, your, uh, your style. History um, and, and biblical truth, they are full of the accounts of individuals who have made a difference. I mean, think about it. Think about even just specifically biblical history. It is always this this one person. I mean, you think of the artists and their contributions. You think of Michelangelo or Leonardo da Vinci or... Uh, think of Beethoven or, or Mozart and the contrib- contributions that they made. You think of the, <laughs> the scientific genius that has gone on over the years. The technological leaps that people have made that have brought us to 2023. All of these things were discovered by, you know, one person, two people, whatever. All... And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, those people are really smart, and I'm not, and <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but, I mean, we do think that. We think these are incredible people. These are the, these are the, the elite or the, the genius types. They're the ones that are going to make contributions, but, but I'm not that kind of person. And, and, and maybe that is true to a certain extent, but I would push back on that a little bit because I think that when you read the Word of God, more often than not, yes, there's the Elijahs and there's the Moseses, Moseses and uh, there are all these, you know, there, there are these bigger-than-life people. But we tend to focus on those bigger than life people and their accounts in the Bible way too much because the Bible is full of individuals, ordinary, everyday individuals who just uh, were available and God used. 
um, when you read the Bible, you're not going to find a series of stories about great crusades and, and these mass meetings where, you know, these, you, you were going to read some of those stories, but more often than not, what you're going to see in the Bible is you're going to find one person who was available and he made a difference. They set the pace. They stood in the gap. They made the way. That is the story from Genesis to Revelation. It's, it's the story of how one, um, it's, it's the story of how God's hand was on one man or one woman in a certain time frame. And as a result of these people being available and doing what, what God told them to do, history was made. I'd invite you to, to turn to the book of Esther this morning, and, and uh, we want to take um, a look at chapter 4 today. And Pastor Matt read for us the kind of the, what, what will lead us into chapter 4. It's something that we talked about last week, but we're going to talk about it uh, a little bit more this morning. But we want to focus more on chapter 4 today. <laughs> and just the idea, as you're turning there, I would just quote a, a couple of verses for you, just with this whole idea of of being one and and the significance of one uh second chronicles chapter 16 verse 9 says this for the eyes of the lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose singular heart is completely his one person roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and look now and take note and see in her open square in her open squares if you can find a man singular if there is one who does justice who seeks the truth then I will pardon her Jeremiah chapter 5 is uh, Ezekiel chapter 22 verse 30 says this and I searched for a man a man singular among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me in the land that I should not destroy it but I found no one Exodus says they forgot God their savior who had done great things for them in Egypt awesome things by the Red Sea therefore he said he would destroy them had not one person Moses His chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Only one. One person. Only one missionary gets into into an area of the jungle and a tribe is reached. Only uh, Only one politician. He stands alone and a country is... Uh, set on a, on a new direction or a country is saved. One strong-willed and determined person says, I am going to stand up against this, this evil, this thing that I don't agree with. I'm going to stand up against it and a community is changed. All of those things and these things that we have actually mentioned already, is, it's a great introduction for the fourth chapter of, of Esther. We know, and we have, we have said this ad nauseum already, but we know that it is an unusual book because, because God's name is never mentioned. 
He's, he's woven, yes, into the tapestry of the, of the entire book, of all the chapters. He's working in and through the lives of the individuals that we read about in the book of Esther. And, but his name is never mentioned. So remember what we've already talked about, and, and specifically what Pastor Matt read for us today. Remember that the Jews now have been threatened. Um, they have been threatened with genocide. They have been threatened with extermination. Haman, with his grudge guiding him, the grudge that he would not let go, he has influenced the, and, and perhaps even tricked the king of Persia. And because of the plan that I have set up, Haman says to himself, it is possible for me to pour money into the king's treasury and for us to get rid of the land, uh, get rid of these people in our land, to get rid of them. These people will not bow down to us. They will not worship you as the king, uh, Suarez. I mean, these people are a blight on our society. So why wouldn't we get rid of them? This is the way he rationalizes it to himself, again, with his grudge guiding him. And he says to the king, agree with me and we're going to set a date. And that's what uh, the end of chapter 3 really tells us. That's the plan. It has the makings of the worst kind of holocaust. Bloodshed. An entire race of people in a certain place are going to be exterminated. The Jews are no longer going to be in our land. We are going to finally be rid of these people, Haman says to himself. And in case you wonder what that did to that country, and specifically to the Jews that were in that country, look at the last word in chapter 3. The last sentence says, Haman and the king sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Another, uh, I think in Pastor Matt's Bible, it said bewilderment. I don't know what it says exactly in yours. But when, Cain, when Haman and the king sat down to, I don't know, toast or, or whatever, but they were sitting down over drinks, they were in the palace, they were sitting at a table, and while they were doing that, the Jews in Susa and probably in the entire country were wandering around in bewilderment and confusion. They were disillusioned. They were probably saying to themselves, what do we do now? How do we continue? How do we exist? You talk about a time for one person to step forward. This is the moment. But who could it be? I mean, in the, in the days of the Medes and the Persians, when, the, when an edict was set forth, when a law was written, nobody changed it. Not when the king had his signet ring and, you know, punched it into the wax or whatever and, 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 and sealed it. There was no changing this law. Certainly there was no Jew that was going to change this law. But we know the story, and we know how it goes, and it was time for a heroine to, to come into the mix. It was time for a heroine to step forward, and her name was Esther. 
And I mean, I think we just want to, <coughs> we want to follow the story in chapter four and we'll just kind of, we're going to look at a few verses and we'll try to tell the story to ourselves. And we see the response in the, the city of Susa was, was thrown into confusion and bewilderment. And then the story continues on in chapter four, verse one. And this is what it says. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. You know, we, we read lots in the Bible. I'm sure you have, when you've been reading your Bible, you read about sackcloth and ashes a lot, probably. Um, we know some things. It's seldom explained probably exactly what is going on here, but it was common in those days to wear really loose fitting clothes, dark colored garments, and they were made of, uh, it was made of goat's hair. It wasn't meant to be comfortable. Um, they hung on you like this big gunny sack. And uh, if you were in bankruptcy or if you were in mortal loss or you were living with a disease, um, you would put on one of these sacks, this this garment made of goat's hair and then once you had this on you would get ashes from somewhere uh, and then you would just get fit, fistfuls of them and then you just kind of chuck them on yourself you just throw you know you would uh, you would just throw um, these ashes on yourself or you would even sit in the midst of a cold ash heap and you would throw the ashes on yourself as an expression of grief it was meant for the entire community that you were a part of to know that there was something wrong, that there was something going on in your life that, that you were mourning. Um, I think in the West, we in the West, I, I think sometimes, or I know that we handle grief very differently than they do uh, certainly back then, and, and, but even in the East today. But this is... A long time ago. This is in Persia. And Mordecai here, I want you to notice, he, he holds nothing back here. He is in sackcloth and ashes. He stumbles toward the gate of the palace. Verse 2, it says, uh, He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. I don't know why he went there. I think we can probably guess why he went there. He probably went to... Uh, close to the, to the palace, in, in mind to get the attention of the queen. Um, she lived in this secluded environment. She, she lived in this indulgence of the palace. She didn't often or ever concern herself with the people of the street. Perhaps he thought, if I could only get her attention... But Mordecai puts on this sack, he gets ashes, and he pours them on himself, and it says that he gave, he gave out a loud and a bitter cry. I think it's safe to say he probably got attention. And then verse 4, obviously he does get her attention because it says, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs uh, came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, and he sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so that she sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so that he might take off his sackcloth, that he might, but he would not accept them. 
Esther is greatly disturbed here. Um, if you look at verse 5, it says, Then Esther called to Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to a tender, and ordered her to go to Mordecai and learn what this was and why this was. And Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in the front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay in the king's treasury for this destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. So no wonder that Esther is disturbed here, right? I mean, this is her home. These are her roots She hopes that perhaps, uh, maybe in a change of clothing that she sends to Mordecai, that, that maybe she is going to be able to persuade him to come in, to tell him exactly what's going on. He refuses. She sends out people to find out what's happening. And, and Mordecai tells uh, Hathach the, the, the whole story to make sure that Esther knows. And I don't know exactly what was in Mordecai's mind, I mean, we, we don't know. We can make guesses, but I, I think it's... I, I think that the wheels were turning in Mordecai's mind. I, I really do. I think that they were... He was wondering how, how this situation could be remedied, how it could be more... Um, how it could be solved... And I don't know if he had in mind that Esther was the one to do that at the time, but, but he knew that he had to put this issue on the line for his, for his surrogate daughter, for his queen, for Esther. And I think he also knew at that point that if she were to act on it, there was a possibility that it could mean her life. This was no time for rumor. So, and, and look at the last part of, of verse 8 again. Um, Mordecai odds read the whole thing Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people Mordecai wanted to tell her what she needed to do I mean no one at this point knew that she was Jewish no one knew that, um, no one was going to know until she actually said it. And that's the hook. It's really the, the, what the whole story hinges on. Does one person make a difference? Would this Jewish lady make a difference to her nation? Would anyone, would anyone else in the entire nation of Persia actually have the ear of the queen more than the queen. A guy by the name of James Hastings, when he was writing on Esther, said this, Mordecai contemplated this bitter necessity. He gazed upon it until his eyes were a fountain of tears, and he studied the situation till the iron entered into his very soul, and then he made 
his appeal to Queen Esther to stand forward as the savior of her people. I'm certain that when he saw Hathach and when he stood there in his sackcloth and ashes, he thought, this is the moment. This is my only chance. This is my only moment and opportunity to tell Esther that she needs to stand in the gap. To tell her to stand alone. And just think about that. I mean, think about all of what that decision entailed. Telling her that she needed to do something to save her people. This was... This was, by rights, a father telling his daughter that there was a possibility she could lose her life. In essence, Mordecai was sending out his little girl to do something that could potentially end her existence. Don't tell me that wasn't a hard decision for Mordecai to make. Think about the person that you love most in the world. Think about your children. Think about your spouse. Think about your best friend. Your mom or your dad. Could you do that? Don't tell me that wasn't a hard decision for Mordecai. It was. Hathach comes back, verse 9. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Let's keep reading. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants... And the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Let's not be too hard on Esther either. I mean, think about this. We, I think that we are pretty familiar with the idea of self-preservation. And we're very fond of it. I'm, I'm very fond of myself. Um, maybe more, more than I should be. But, but I want myself to be preserved. Don't you? I mean, we, we want to remain. We, we want to be healthy. We want to survive. And so when you read a response like this, where Esther says, Mordecai, do you understand what you are asking me to do? You are asking me to go in front of the king, and if, if he is in a bad mood, or has indigestion, or whatever, and he doesn't want to see me, I could be, I could be killed. Do you understand that, Mordecai? She said, I haven't even seen this guy. I don't even know what his feelings are toward me. I haven't seen him for for a month. 
I'm not sure I can do that. That's what Esther said. But Mordecai, I think he knew, he really knew Esther. He had reared her. He had trained her. He probably knew how far he could push. He knew her character. He, and, and I think all wise parents know their children, don't they? And, and sometimes, I think we as parents have to be the reason that, that our children develop character. I mean, that's why there are children. It's one of our jobs. There are occasions in our lives that are little windows of time where you step forward, and, it, and, and maybe you're not a parent, but you have a relationship somewhere with, with your nieces or nephews or, or, or whatever it is, whatever the, the relationship is, there are times, there are these little windows of time where you can step forward and tell these children to be brave. There are times when you have to call upon your children to stand alone and to trust them to do it, to trust in what you have taught them. And Mordecai is now at that moment. (laughs) Look at verse 13, verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more of all the other than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, release and deliverance will rise from the Jew, for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. If you could pick one, two, three verses in the entire book of Esther that, um, that are pivotal, that are the most important, that are the key verses. In the, it's this. It, it is this moment. It is these words that are spoken by Mordecai to Esther. Mordecai follows three tracks. I don't know if you noticed that. Maybe he was a pastor. He was using three points. Um, He basically said, first, if you do nothing, don't think that you are going to escape death. You do or die. Second, he said, don't make too much of this because God is not limited by you or me. He's saying, I mean, Mordecai had this great amount of faith. He understood something about Jewish history, I think, and, and, and how God would preserve his people. And he said, if, if it's not you, and it's not me, it's going to come from somewhere else. But God is going to preserve his people. And then, third, he says, how great, I know I'm paraphrasing here, but this is what he says, how great would it be if, if God used you? To stand in the gap for his people. How great would it be? Could it be that you were given this promotion for such a time as this? Could it be that God brought you into this situation for this moment? For this hour? For this, this time? What a great speech. Um, I don't know how 
great a prime minister Winston Churchill was as far as just the day-to-day operations of the country. But man, was he ever a great orator. He was a great speech maker. Um, June 18th, 1940, this is what he said. I, I wish I had a British accent to do this, but I'm, I, I don't. Uh, let, us brace, <laughs> let us brace ourselves to our duties. And so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say that this was their finest hour. And then six months later, to an even greater distraught and broken nation, he says to Great Britain, death and sorrow will be the companions of our journey. Hardship, our garment, constancy, our valor, and our only shield. But we must be united. We must be undaunted. We must be inflexible. Stand. Don't stop. Stand alone and fight to the end. What a great speech. Mordecai's speech was like that, wasn't it? Mordecai says to Esther, Esther, this is your hour. Stand up. Speak up. Die if you have to, but don't you dare be silent. Take a look at verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. I don't know how long it was between, you know, like verse 14 and verse 15. I'd like to say that maybe in that moment, in just a second, she realized, yep, I got to do this. This is a remarkable woman. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I will... I and my young women will also fast as you do, and then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. She's had time to think. She's had time to weigh her words and her counsel, and her response is, I will go. I will go. I'll do Even though it's against the law, I'm going to do it. And if I perish, I perish, but I will not be silent. What a great answer. It it rivals the speech that Mordecai made. Is she going to make a difference, do you think? If I perish, I perish. If If a guard drives a sword through my body, I die doing the right thing. And so she changed from, from fear to faith. She, she changed from hesitation to confidence. She changed uh, from concern for her own safety to concern for her people's survival. It can happen in a life just like that. It, 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 can, happen, it can happen from a message just like this. And if you are, are out there today and you're just thinking about a cause that you could fight for and you're not, why? I mean, 
you know what Esther realized? She realized that there was an enemy. In that moment, she realized that there was an adversary. She realized other things as well, I guess, but she especially realized that. I think, I think maybe in this moment, in verse 15 or 14 or, or whenever what Mordecai was saying to her, I think for the first moment, the softness of the palace was starting to get a bit uncomfortable. And she realized that there was evil being bred in this country. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in his book, uh, Five Smooth Stones, he writes this, Whenever there is a people of God, there are enemies of God. A realization that there, in fact, that there is, in fact, an enemy forces a reassessment of priority. See, the moment that Haman surfaced, Esther began to move from being a beauty queen to becoming a Jewish savior. (laughs) She moved from being an empty-headed queen to being a passionate intercessor. from the busy, indolent life of, you know, just being in the palace or, or being in the harem, she, she moved from that to, to the high-risk venture of speaking for and identifying with God's people. And maybe she said to herself, enough of the easy life. It's time for me to put my name on the line. I'm Jewish, and I stand for these people, and if I perish, I perish. See, this, I'm not sure if I've said this, but this is more than a book about Jewish history. It's more about Persian history. It's more than than a book about Persian history. This isn't to help us put together the lives of uh, Ahasuerus and Haman and harmonize them with Mordecai and Esther and the other Jewish characters. See, what this book is, it's about life. It is a book about standing alone, and it is a book about personal involvement in each individual. And I mean, it goes all the way back to what we said at the beginning. In this massively overpopulated world that we live in, where there are 7 billion people, it is easy to underestimate the significance of one person. But in an overpopulated, let me just make it personal for each and every one of us. In an overpopulated world like ours, it's easy to underestimate the value of you or me. Your vote, your convictions, your determination to stay, I am going to stand up against this. This evil, I am going to stand, I am going to say something, I am not going to be silent. To have the courage to do that. You know, as I was thinking about this this week, I I was thinking about my grandpa Swatsky. He was a conscientious objector. Um, I didn't know much about it, and I never actually got the opportunity to talk to him about it before he died. I did, however, have the opportunity to talk to Mr. Penner about it. Um, 
when I was 28 years old, and just a new pastor of this church, he invited me to go to a baseball game with him. And we went to Winnipeg, and we went and watched baseball, and he told me the whole story. And whether you believe in the whole idea of conscientious objection and, and all that sort of stuff, that's not the point. The point is that he courageously stood up in open court being mocked by his fellow, uh, by the people in the courtroom and even the judge who spoke to him with derision and tried to shame him. And Mr. Penner stood up there and he spoke out for something that he believed in. My grandpa W.T., uh, he was, uh, he was a, a truck driver, a, a sawmill operator. He was all these things, and he was also a minister in, in, um, in um, an old colony Mennonite church. And back then, uh, they had a hard time with the whole idea of justification by faith. And through the scriptures and through reading and uh, the Bible for himself, my grandpa and my, my Uncle Bill, they together came to the idea that, that, that salvation came through faith in Jesus Christ. And they started to preach that way. And that was not met with um, smiles and approval. In fact, a group of people that did not like what my grandpa was saying, they came to his house and they wanted to beat him up. They wanted to, to take him out. I don't know exactly what their intentions were. They, they, there were threats of hanging and, and all these sorts of things. And the Lord provided and, and protected them that night. But, but my grandpa stood up against something that, that he thought was wrong and he believed in. Uh, our time is just about gone. I, I, I had a story about my dad too, but... I would just say this. I think it's important for us to stand alone sometimes, even when our friends, even then when our coworkers, even when the people that we go to church with don't agree with us, don't understand. The major issue or the big idea that rises from this message is what does it matter if I get involved or not? Well, I, I would say that it matters all the world to your character. And God has other ways, yes. He has other people. He isn't frustrated because you and I may be indifferent or disobedient. But let me just ask you this. Wouldn't it be great to think that we have been elevated to the position that we are in at, the very mo- at this very moment? Wouldn't it be great to think that we have been elevated and placed in these places that we are in right now? Wouldn't it be great to go to this generation and speak up for the Lord for such a time as this? And maybe you are in a very unique and and a great position to, to speak out, not to millions, but maybe just to one. To throw that starship, uh, st- the starfish, back into the ocean, because it would make a difference to them.
there are some amazing causes that we have just right in our own community, the cheer board and, and making hampers for people that, Christmas hampers for people that, that can't afford uh, Christmas dinner or, you know, groceries are a real stretch for them. Our church is involved in that. Isn't that great? The Prairie Pregnancy Center in, in Portage, the Prairie, we, I mean, they, they do such a great job of just not being in your face, but just behind the scenes supporting young moms and speaking out by their love for those young moms against abortion. They're not blocking access to abortion clinics. They're not bombing things. They're not doing anything. What they're doing is loving people. And we should support that. You should support that. Our time's gone, but I, I would think two principles emerge from this, this path. These aren't mine, um, but uh, I just wanted to include them because they really do speak out. The, the first thing is this. Not until we believe one person can make a difference will we be willing to risk ourselves. Isaac Watts, uh, him, a uh, I think God in glory. I can't remember exactly what the title is. It's, but it says this, set our feet on lofty places, gird our lives that they may be armored with all Christ-like graces in the fight to set men free. Grant us wisdom, grant us courage that we may fail not man nor thee. Chuck Swindoll, <laughs> maybe paraphrasing Isaac Watts' hymn, says this, don't be so careful protecting your own backside. Don't worry that much about what other people are going to think. You don't answer to them. You answer to your God. Here's the second thing. Only when we move out from the safe harbor of theory to the world of reality can we actually make a difference. It means that when it comes time to vote, we vote. It means... Um, we, we don't think about the fact that, yeah, it, it would be a good idea to vote. We don't simply inform someone else the best way to vote. We vote. Now, that's just one example, obviously. But we go to the trouble. We, we pay the price. Men and women have died so that we can live in freedom. Wouldn't it be just enough? I, I go back to the voting thing, but... W- Aren't we, aren't we just shaming their contribution if we don't? Don't, um, when an issue arises and we stand against it, we say, I stand against this. We don't wait for someone else to say, I stand against this and yeah, I, I'm with them. Why not each and every one of us speak out? Do something about it. Say something about it. Stand alone. It's the deed that matters. Uh, A man by the name of John Drinkwater wrote a, a poem that says this, Grant us the will to fashion as we feel. Grant us the strength to labor as we know. Grant us the purpose ribbed with edge and edge with steel to strike the blow. Knowledge we ask not. Knowledge thou hast lent, but Lord the will. There lies our bitter need. Give us to build above the deep intent, the deed. Sometimes we in churches, are, we're great on theory, 
evangelical theory. Um, but what we need to do is, is move from theory to, to actually doing it. So let me ask you this as we close today. Do you think one person makes a difference? Do you think Jesus made a difference? God so loved the world that he did something. He didn't select a committee. (laughs) He didn't theorize how great it would be for someone to come to our rescue. He didn't write a book about it. Well, he did, but not then. Um, He did something, and the Son of God said to God the Father, you know what he said? He said, I will go. And he took upon himself the form of a servant and he made and was made in the fashion of men and being found in the fashion of men, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And he did something about it and that's why we can be saved. We don't believe in a theory. We don't believe in a... Uh, we believe in a revolutionary kind of faith that comes from the person of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you and for me, that we might live. He didn't just think about how good it would would be to die. He actually died that we might live. And so the question is, this morning, what do you, the question is not this, what, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think about Christ? The question is, what have you done about what you think the issue is how do you feel about the message of the, uh, sorry, the issue is not how do you feel about the message of the gospel. The issue is what have you done about the gospel? Because Christ has come into the world to save sinners. And there is only one God and there is only one mediator. And there is only one between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And if you come to God through the mediator, through Jesus, you will be forgiven. And that's the only way. Whoever believes in the Son of God, no matter, has the wrath of God upon him and is accepted into the beloved. And I would say to you, come today, make that decision. You might be the only one in this entire place that needs to make the decision, but isn't today the the day to do it? Be courageous enough to respond. And for the rest of us, I would say that we need to be courageous enough to speak out. For the God that we serve. Be courageous enough to respond and be courageous enough to speak out. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would enable us to be true to our convictions. I pray that you would give us the intelligence to think and the courage to act I pray that we would set aside our, our conveniences, that we could set aside our preferences for our own indifference and we can break the mold. Not so that we would be lifted up, but rather that you would be lifted up, that your name would be glorified. This we pray, Father. Amen.